1: Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about SIMULTV.com com.
2: Roswell in the 21st Century is a detailed re-examination of the Roswell UFO crash case. I have studied the evidence for more than 30 years, and I now put that evidence under a microscope in a cold case examination of the facts. These facts might not please everyone. They are based on my comprehensive investigation that took years to complete, but they do lead to the conclusion that whatever fell was not built on Earth. The best of Project Blue Book is based on the 22-year-long investigation conducted by the Air Force, but the book goes far beyond that, bringing in evidence that was uncovered long after Project Blue Book was ordered to be terminated. Using facts that were unavailable to the Air Force investigators, I was able to prove that the Air Force manipulated the data and drew unrealistic conclusions about the UFO sightings reported to them. My different perspective shows there was more to Project Blue Book than even the Air Force knew. Both books are available at Amazon.com.
0: Join Patty Conklin and Healing Within Radio each week. More than entertainment, Healing Within offers educational, useful tools for everyday life. Listen for help overcoming fear, anxiety, and depression. Patty knows about eliminating cancer, MS, dementia, Parkinson's, and a host of illnesses that we face every day. Life can be good. Life is good. All you need are simple tools to start changing your life. Start right now by visiting pattyconklin.com, P-A-T-T-I-C-O-N-K-L-I-N. No matter where you are in the world, you can work with Patty through Skype, phone, or in person visiting one of her retreats in Georgia. Visit pattyconklin.com today or call our offices at 404-474-0086. That's pattyconklin.com or call 404 404-
3: This is a different perspective with Kevin Randall. Kevin is a retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel who has studied UFOs for more than 50 years. His military training has provided him with unique insight into military operations and UFO research. Kevin has investigated many of the most mysterious cases and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries and been interviewed on hundreds of radio and television programs about UFOs. Considered to be one of the leading experts on the Roswell UFO crash, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs including Roswell in the 21st Century and Encounter in the Desert, a re-examination of the Socorro UFO landing. Now here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall.
2: And welcome to this special edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. I say special edition because there's going to be no guest but me today. We're going to be talking about Flight 19 and the Bermuda Triangle. But before we start, let me thank all of you who have purchased a copy of uh, the Best of Project Blue Book. And if you've enjoyed the book, it helps if you put a review on Amazon. It'll let us spread the word so that others will see how the UFO information had been manipulated for like decades by the military and the and the uh, U.S. government. I'm going to start by something a little strange here. The other day I was watching a movie called Head Office. And for all of you who have dirty minds know it was not a porno. There were big name actors in it, such as Rick Moranis and Danny DeVito and Eddie Albert and Jane Seymour and Judge Reinhold and Richard Mauser, just to name a few of them. And the idea was that they... Um, were in uh, a public relations move with this big company. And during this point, they made a, what I thought is a very profound statement. You've got Judge Reinhold and Richard Mauser traveling down to the city to give their side of the story, why the plant in the city is being closed. And Judge Reinhold says to Richard Maurer, Mauser, why uh, not just tell the truth? about why we're closing the past, just tell the truth. And Mauser says, there is no truth. There are only stories. I thought that probably applies quite well to the UFO phenomenon, the paranormal. There's an awful lot of stories, but there's very little truth involved in it. So we're going to get into uh, the Bermuda Triangle, because there are many, many stories and very little truth involved in the Bermuda Triangle. Now, I'm not sure when I became interested in the Bermuda Triangle. I don't think it was Vincent Gaddis's article in the 1964 issue of Argosy Magazine where he actually used the term Bermuda Triangle. I think he is credited with inventing that term. I think my interest was probably sparked by Goodwin's book, which I've mentioned on my blog and uh, maybe on this program, which was called This Baffling World. And it was a lot of different um, chapters about strange things, like the Bermuda Triangle, like UFOs, like Oak Island, and I think that kind of sparked my interest in Oak Island as well. You know, so he did a good job of sparking my interest anyway. So Gannis used the term the Bermuda Triangle. They've been called Devil's Triangle and things like that. And I think the article. Is, is mentioned on the cover of the magazine as the Devil's Triangle, and then in the text of the article, he calls it the Bermuda Triangle. And because um, of the way the the, the sentences were worded, or whatever, that was the name that stuck. Now, during this uh, time, you know, he's talking about all these planes being swept from the sky. He's talking about all these ships being pulled beneath the waves. Without explanation, they just simply disappear off the face of the earth. There's no wreckage, there's no debris, there's no um, uh, uh, distress calls, there's nothing left behind. They are just completely and totally gone. And they, it, it's confined to this area that I think runs from Miami to Bermuda to San Juan, Puerto Rico, and back to Miami. It's a huge area. And uh, there's been an awful lot of planes in. Boats and ships lost in that area, and it may be because that area is frequented by lots of planes and boats and ships. Uh, he mentioned the Marine Sulphur Queen, for example, suggesting that something was very mysterious about its disappearance. I mean, it was gone without a trace. Here's this huge boat, huge ship, and it just vanishes without any sort of distress call or anything like that. Charles Berlitz reported that no debris or wreckage had ever been found from the marine sulfur queen. I mean, just complete and total mystery here. So once Gaddis came up with this name, Bermuda Triangle, the legend was kind of cemented at that point. I mean, that just stuck in everybody's mind and it just was a very visual thing for people to look at. What we learn is the loss of ships, or rather the crews and the ships, goes back to the 1840s when a uh, ship called the Rosalie, and this is an old Warden sailing vessel, obviously, was found drifting and abandoned in the Triangle. The sails were set, but there was no trace of the crew, and it was towed onto Nassau in the Bahamas. I mean, here's one of the very first instances of something like that happening in the Bermuda Triangle. Berlitz mentions a German bark, which is a small boat, small ship, called the Freya which uh, left Manzan- Manzanillo, Cuba, in October 1902, and it was found uh, somewhat damaged, but the crew was completely missing. It was drifting abandoned in the Bermuda Triangle. In 1925, the SS Cotopaxi vanished without a trace, traveling from Charleston uh, in the United States to Havana in Cuba. In December of 1967, the witchcraft disappeared uh, one mile off Miami near buoy number seven, and although no, the, the uh, Coast Guard got a distress call, um, they just couldn't arrive in time to save it. They knew exactly where it was, but uh, there was nothing there. They, the Coast Guard had asked them to fire a flare after 19 minutes so that the Coast Guard would be able to find it. But if they're at buoy number seven, what's the point of firing a flare because you know exactly where it was, and it's one mile off the, off the shores of Miami, and it disappeared without a trace. Nothing has ever been found. So you've got all these ships, and that's just, that's just a few of them that, that uh, they, they talk about that. We can go into great length and great depth of, of, of lots of these sorts of things. Private planes disappearing, small boats disappearing, large ships disappearing, military aircraft disappearing. All of this supposedly without a trace, supposedly in good weather. Now, there are some reports of people who were flying into the Triangle or navigating through the Triangle and they reported strange um, magnetic anomalies, easy to say, magnetic anomalies. And if you look at the um, aviation charts, you'll find that there is a magnetic deviation that runs through the Bermuda Triangle that is fairly large, but it's marked on the chart, so it's not something that would be unexpected. So people could be expected the pilots could be expected, be aware of that, and they could adjust their courses accordingly to, to compensate for this magnetic anomaly. So we've got all of this going on in the Bermuda Triangle. Now back in uh, the mid-1970s, I think it was, well I know it was in the mid-1970s, I can't remember was 74, 75, I was in Denver and Jim Lorenzen from the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, which was mostly interested in UFOs and all the ancillary parts of UFOs, was hosting a big symposium or convention in Denver. And uh, I think it's the place where I first met Philip Class, for those of you who are interested in such things, um, because he made it a habit to attend all of these sorts of things because as the leading skeptic of the world, I think he felt it was his job to attend all this and gather as much information as he could, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's only when you filter that information uncritically.
3: We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for $2.50. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2. Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price.
4: Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad.
2: Uh, that it, it becomes important he just he just filtered everything to his point of view well anyhow Jim is giving a presentation and at one point in this presentation he's talking about flight 19 so we, we move back to that the Avenger torpedo bombers we've talked about uh, with um, uh, Doug Westfall and uh, Andy Morocco in the last couple of weeks and he says at that uh, meeting he says uh, how do five aircraft disappear all at once and that's a damn fine question how do five airplane dis- airplanes disappear at once you would assume if there was a mechanical disability that it would have only affected one airplane and if there was some sort of a mid-air collision because like they were flying formation that it wouldn't taken them all out it would have only taken out a couple of the aircraft it wouldn't take them all out so you have this very strange situation developed where five airplanes disappear all at once when it became clear that the Five Avengers were not going to return to the Naval Air Station at Fort Lauderdale, and when it was clear that they were, had exhausted their fuel supply so they had to be down somewhere, it was clear that they were in distress, they launched a number of um, search efforts, one of them being a Martin Mariner, which is a big um, seaplane. And it was 30 minutes into its flight when it disappeared as well. So now you've got five aircraft with a total, I think, of 14 people on board, plus the Martin Mariner, which had 13 people on board, all disappearing on December 5th, 1945. They're just gone. Nobody knows what happened to them. And you've got this huge search going on looking for the, de- the aircraft, the life rafts, the debris, anything that'll give them a hint of what happened. And this kind of... I guess set up the whole mystery of the Bermuda Triangle because here was something extremely mysterious and there was absolutely no explanation for it. And I will go into more depth about this in just a moment, but we're gonna have to take a quick break here. And I wanted to mention that there are some other fine programs on Paranormal, on the Exone Broadcast Network so take a look at the listings at the Exone Broadcast website to find some of those and take a look and take a listen to some of them I think you'll find them very interesting and I will have much more information about this on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and when we come back we'll get a little bit deeper into the Bermuda Triangle and see if we can't solve some of this so please stick around.
3: Are you looking for psychic services that empower as well as provide accurate information? Jenny is a third generation psychic with extensive esoteric training. A practicing professional intuitive for over 30 years, her accuracy is astounding. While most psychics can read what will happen to you if you don't change directions, Jenny understands the future is subjective. While there is a river of time we all traverse, that river has many waves, eddies, currents and tributaries from which to choose. With Jenny as your guide, you can explore the many possible outcomes in the river of time and navigate your course to the one of your liking. Take control of your future. Book your life-changing session with Jenny today at www.gen-e.net. That's www.gen-e.net.
2: In the mid-1990s, I was approached by a young woman who believed she'd been abducted by alien creatures. In conversations, I began a journey that took me not into the world of interstellar travel, but back through time into past lives. Under hypnotic regression administered by a professional rather than describing abduction, Jenny, as she is called, begins to tell a tale of horror in 19th century London. Her unbelievable past life seems to connect with Jack the Ripper and other monsters of the past. Throughout the session, Jenny provides a rich detail of her past lives that links some of the most horrific killers in history to one another using the resources of a university library in the pre-internet day, I was able to verify some of Jenny's claims she has knowledge that wasn't readily available to a suburban housewife does this prove the reality of her tales conversations attempts to answer that and other provocative questions conversations is available at amazon.com a bit, when we went away, we were talking about the disappearance of the five Avenger torpedo bombers in the Bermuda Triangle and the Martin Mariner sent out to find them. And how that is kind of uh, cements the idea of something mysterious going on in the Triangle because of all of this this disappear, disappearance. And I think I became more interested in the Triangle lore because it seemed that there was something alien involved, something that we had talked about in um, the UFO literature quite a bit, suggesting that the aliens were involved in it, that it was, it had to be extraterrestrial, or interdimensional. Here was something that we could get our, our, our teeth into and improve that sort of thing. So I began collecting information about the triangle, meaning that I did look for magazine articles and later books. And ironically, the only article I ever sold to Argosy. Remember, Argosy is the magazine that Vincent Gaddis used to coin the term Bermuda Triangle. The only article I ever sold to Argosy magazine um, was about a solution to the Bermuda Triangle, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, So they kind of started the mystery at one point in 1964. And then it was in the late late 80s that I sold an article to it It was one of the last issues of Argosy magazine that uh, was ever published. So, uh, and if have, in fact it might have been the last ever published, I don't remember. Anyhow, um, in looking at all of this stuff, I realized I had a firsthand connection to one of the disappearances. Now, all of you know I spent time as an Air Force Reserve officer and I was an intelligence officer. First at um, <clears throat> the 442nd Tactical Airlift Wing out of uh, Richard's gebaur Air Force Base and later in a sub subordinate unit to the 440th Tactical Airlift Wing, which was based at General Billy Mitchell Field in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I was uh, the intelligence officer for the 928 Tactical Airlift Group. And we were having a conference up in Milwaukee. And I was well aware that they had lost an airplane in the, in the Bermuda Triangle at some point. Uh, it was on June 5th, 1965. So To be perfectly clear, I was still in high school in June 1965, and I hesitate to say that because that, of course, dates me, but I was still in high school. But the C-119 from the 440th was lost in the triangle. Charles Berlitz wrote about that. He reported, the last call received from the C-119 gave its position as being about 100 miles from its destination with an ETA, estimated time of arrival, of about one hour. This was the last message and after a search lasting 5 days and nights the coast guard reported results negative with the familiar comment there are no conjectures Faint and unintelligible messages were picked up and soon faded out as if something was blocking radio transmissions or else the plane was receding as it had been as had been suggested further and f- further into space and time so berlitz Gloms on to this sighting and, and or this this incident and talks about it in his book, The Bermuda Triangle, cleverly titled. So now I'm a member of the, basically the 440th. I'm I'm in one of its subordinate units, but I'm a member of the 440th, and we're having this conference in in Milwaukee, and I think I was in the um, the uh, office of the public affairs officer. I think that's where I was, and I asked about that aircraft. They said it disappeared without a trace. You know, it's one where I discovered one of the first major chinks in the Triangle Armor. And one of the officers there said, oh, no, we found some wreckage. Would you like to see it? So here in the 1970s, late 1970s, possibly the early 80s, they still had some of the wreckage that they had they had recovered so it didn't didn't disappear without a trace wreckage had been found so i uh, asked for some other information and they said you know one of the problems is the aircraft had electrical problems which means the electrical systems would short out and it and it had a history of this in the, in the write-ups they could follow the write-ups and how it would have been repaired and that sort of thing and i was told that since the aircraft disappeared at night if they're flying over water at night with even just a slight haze that the horizon would tend to blend with the with the sky it would be very difficult to see the horizon and as a pilot you know you've got to see where the horizon is if they've lost their electrical system the entire electrical system at night they've lost the instruments they need to fly at night. They can't see the horizon because of the haze or whatever's going on out there. The artificial horizon is not working, so they cannot orient the aircraft properly. And it doesn't take long to become misoriented. Uh, I think JFK Jr. crashed in a similar circumstance. You become disoriented because if you try to fly by the seat of your pants in that circumstance, you're going to be wrong, and that was something they beat into us in in, in flight school: was always believe your interest instruments because whatever you perceive inside the cockpit you're going to be wrong you have to be able to see outside the cockpit you have to be able to see your instruments and you believe your instruments so if they
4: we know you can't get enough of your favorite flavors
2: luckily kroger free
4: pickup makes it easy to grab what you need without any surprise fees whether it's extra buns for the barbecue or those chips you just can't quit start your cart with the kroger app kroger fresh for everyone $35 order minimum restrictions may apply, subject
3: to availability. It's the big $10 sale, so mix and match and get 2, 3, 4, 5, or even 10 for $10 with your card. So many great deals. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The we're going family style deal.
1: Because I want a bite of
4: your Big Mac.
3: And I need some of your Quarter Pounder.
4: I'll try your filet of fish
3: There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer.
2: Got into the situation where the electrical systems had failed. There's no lights in the cockpit. The electrical instruments are not working. And they they can't get a good visual representation of the horizon. It would be very easy for them to fly into the water. And that was the consensus of what happened to that C-119. They crashed into the water. Now, the other thing that, you know, as I said, when Berlitz wrote about this, he said that uh, no wreckage was found. Well, that turns out not to be true. And some of the wreckage found was from the inside of the aircraft, which means the aircraft had to break up. So... uh, The assumption would be, based on the evidence we have, based on what we know, is that the pilots lost orientation in the cockpit and they flew into the water. And if they flew in at a steep enough angle, you wouldn't have a great spread of wreckage. You would not have a great spread of an oil slick. And if the aircraft broke up as it entered the water, then you'd get some of the debris from inside the aircraft floating outside. And since they had debris from inside the aircraft, that's... Pretty much what happened. In fact, they um, they had the wheel chocks, which would have been inside the aircraft, and they're labeled with the number of the aircraft on it, so they could identify what aircraft it came from. Now, for all of before all of you ask, no, I didn't take pictures, and I cannot explain. Why not other than maybe I didn't have my camera with me this was back in the days before we had cell phones and everybody carried a camera with them everywhere so anyway the the idea of this aircraft disappearing in the Bermuda triangle completely without a trace is not true we know what happened to it It doesn't explain everything else it explains that one particular case and I think that's important so contrary to what is what has been printed we know what happened we've got a good analysis of it we've scene where somebody suggested they were judging equipment because they were in some kind of trouble. But I can't see them throwing the wheel chocks out because the wheel chocks would have weighed like 10 pounds. And that wouldn't have been anything they needed to do. So we can pretty well determine what happened there. But that also got to me to think, what about these other cases in the Bermuda Triangle? Can we solve any of those cases? Well, let's let's talk about uh, the Freya which left to what is it Manzanillo, Mexico, or uh, Cuba. When you look at the records, you discover that there are two ports, one in Cuba and one in Mexico. Freya did not leave from Cuba, did not fly, was not found drifting and abandoned in the Bermuda Triangle. It was found drifting and abandoned in the Pacific. So, We can eliminate that one from the Bermuda Triangle. Is it mysterious? Uh, It may well be, but it does nothing to enhance the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle. Now, I still believed in the paranormal explanation about the Bermuda Triangle, even though I was finding some of these things going a little bit awry. And I found a book by Lawrence David Cush, called the Bermuda Triangle Solved. Now, if I'm going to believe in the paranormal, I want to be able to argue that from all points of view, and I need to look at the skeptical accounts as well as those that back up my point of view. So of course I bought the book, because if I wanted to argue the mystery, I had to be able to argue it properly and not be caught uh, unaware. And I think if you studied debating, you know that's what you need to do. You need to prepare for both sides of the argument so you can counter the good arguments. The uh, information provided by him and his solution was that the Bermuda Triangle was a manufactured mystery. And the evidence he presented in his book convinced me that he was right. I mean, he had done an awful lot of research. He had done the kind of things you would expect others to do, but they hadn't done it. It's kind of like my chasing footnotes where I want to uh, get to the original source to see what it said. And that's kind of what he was doing through the book. He would go back to the newspaper articles. He would go back to the archives. He would go back to the other places he could go to do research to find out exactly what was going on. Uh, If he could learn anything more about that. He wasn't just reading other people's books and rewriting those books from his own point of view and with his own words, he was going to the original sources. And I've been an advocate of that for quite a long time. You need to look at the original sources. When we come back in just a moment here, we're gonna talk about uh, a couple of the explanations that he found for those mysteries in the Bermuda Triangle. And let me just mention here quickly, if you're interested in the Roswell case, I think Roswell in the 21st century fits into this mold, because I went back to the original sources, I went back to the original people, I gathered as much original data as I could, to kind of see where that case ends up today. And I think if you take a look at the book, you're going to realize there's no good explanation for what happened at Roswell. And maybe that'll be enough to convince you it was extraterrestrial. And maybe it won't, but you'll realize there is no good terrestrial explanation. Once again, that's Roswell in the 21st century. I will be back right after this with more information about the Bermuda Triangle. So please stick around.
3: For more information on the Exxon Radio TV show with yours truly, Rob McConnell, visit www.exonradiotv.com, or www.exontvchannel.com, or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next, we meet here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember Exxon Nation. Keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light.
2: When I took my break, we were uh, talking about some of the explanations in the Bermuda Triangle. This next one is kind of complicated, but I think it's right. Remember I mentioned this ship, the Rosalie, that was found drifting and abandoned uh, in the Bermuda Triangle. But it might not be quite as mysterious as some of the writers have, have suggested. Kush in his book, uh, described or discovered the tale that the Rosalie was quite similar to that of another ship that was known as the Rossini. And if you look at them spelled out together, and you, you, you got to remember the Admiralty records that he was looking at in the eight from the 1840s, they're all done in this fancy script and the way the things are written in those time frames, but sometimes hard to dis- discern them to our modern eyes. And I, and I would imagine in today's world with The uh, school is no longer teaching cursive. It would be impossible for some people to read it now, even if it was in good English. But he uh, found that the Rossini was lost in the same area about the same time, and that it was towed to NASA at about the same date, uh, and it seemed to have suffered the same fate. So his research into the tree records found no information about a ship named the Ros- Rosalie, nothing at all. But it did have information about the Rossini. And according to that information, it had run aground about two weeks earlier and that the crew had been rescued from the ship. So they hadn't, well, they had abandoned it, but they, they hadn't disappeared without a trace. They were rescued. And the, the ship was found Later, and then towed into NASA, or maybe the original crew came back and towed it into to NASA. But anyhow, the ship got towed to NASA. And that uh, that seems to be the problem. There was a confusion between the, Rosa, the name Rosalie as it was written out and the name Rossini as it was written out. And like I said, given the script and the way things were, records were kept at the time, that makes perfect sense to me. And the other information is so close, it just means that somebody had miswritten down the name of the ship in one of these books and everybody else glommed onto it and continued to carry the myth forward. And I've seen that. I've seen that in my own research a number of times where people have done that sort of thing. Um, One guy makes a mistake and everybody else, rather than checking the sources, continues to make that same mistake.
1: Ooh, don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save.
2: And we've, we've got uh, another case of that as well. And, and, and I touch on this on my blog as well, so you can take a look at the information it, uh, in much more depth. But there was, a, like I said earlier, there was a dis- disappearance of a ship named the Witchcraft. That was the one that was about a mile off the Miami coast. And it was supposedly near Boy number no. seven, which is about a mile off the uh, Miami coast. And the coast guard was supposed to fire the flare. I think what happened here is that somebody, as they were writing about this, realized Boy number no. seven was about a mile off the Miami coast. And they just assumed that the witchcraft was near that boy. There's nothing in the original articles, and I've seen those as well, that mentioned it was near buoy number seven. And if it had been near buoy number seven, why would they need to fire a flare? The Coast Guard knew where they were. They just go to buoy number seven. And so uh, the Coast Guard said they never saw a flare and there's no indication that that uh, that ever happened as well. So we've got the witchcraft that uh, it vanished. In Curse of the Bermuda Triangle, which is one of the programs that dragged me kicking and screaming into this research they did some additional research on the disappearance of this ship and as i said i've, I've covered this on my blog uh, while there were strong winds in the area at the time that witchcraft craft disappeared they were all conducted south of buoy number seven because the idea was that the winds would have pushed the craft if it had lost its engines if it couldn't maneuver which is what the coast guard message had said the winds would have pushed it to the south of buoy number seven but on the curse of, um, the Bermuda Triangle, they went to uh, the Weather Bureau and talked to them about that, and they plotted what the uh, currents were in the area. And although it would seem that the boat should have drifted to the south, the currents would have pushed it to the north. And given the way um, the ocean works, I guess, uh, the boat going up and down the trough, which would have shielded from the boat, from the... um, from the winds somewhat and the currents moving toward the north at about four knots I think they said it was and the bo- boat would have drifted to the south at two knots clearly it would have drifted to the north so everyone searched in the wrong area for the witchcraft so they of course started their their search at buoy number seven and they searched north of there where they thought the boat would have been but they uh, they didn't find anything. But I'm thinking they started their search in the wrong place. They assumed that the witchcraft was off boy number seven, as other people had done, and uh, didn't allow for it not being there. So we've got a real conundrum there. And there was uh, something else that hadn't been considered. And that's the owner of the boat. He had been a millionaire. He'd been setting up some businesses. He'd moved down from Ohio and that sort of thing. And he disappeared when the... When the with the boat. And I wondered what happened to him? What happened when his will was probated? And this is something if I lived in Florida, I'd look, I'd try to look up because those kind of records are public records and find out exactly how much money did he have when he disappeared? Had he lost his fortune? Has he gambled it away? Had he frivoled it away? Had he made bad investments? And he was getting out from under debt. And so the ship he made the call to the Coast Guard, and then he just headed for, for NASA in the Bahamas and, and disappeared that way. I think um, he might have engineered his own, his own disappearance. And uh, that's my speculation now. And as I said, if I was in Florida and I could do this sort of research uh, there, I would, I would find out what happened to him. We also have the Cotopaxi, which was another wreck that disappeared without a, without a trace. And I can't really fault anybody for including this one because it did disappear without a trace. The problem is, it's been found. I think it was about a year ago it's been found. And there was a special, and it may have been in the course, curse of uh, the Bermuda Triangle where, where it was um, mentioned. But you go back and you look at the internet, or you go to my blog and you look at the internet, and I, and I linked to some of the articles, uh, it's been found. So it didn't disappear without a trace in the Bermuda Triangle, it sank in the Bermuda Triangle. And then the final final thing I'd like to mention, I mentioned the Marine Sulphur Queen, which supposedly disappeared without a trace. Well, um, and it's linked in on my blog posting as well. I did an article a number of years ago about the Bermuda Triangle being solved. And in that article, there's actually a picture of um, some of the wreckage that had been found from the Marine Sulphur Queen. So it didn't disappear without a trace. The wreckage has been found. so. The other thing you have to remember at uh, this area, some of this area in the Bermuda Triangle is the deepest in the Atlantic Ocean. And so you're talking about areas that are 12, 13, 14,000 feet deep. And if you drop an airplane into 13,000 feet of water, especially a private plane or something like that, the odds are it's not going to be found, uh, especially the way the, the, um, the ocean floor looks in that area and that sort of thing. So we've, we've looked at a number of these things And uh, what we see is they haven't disappeared without a trace. So, as I said, this all got what got me all started on this recently was both the curse of the Bermuda Triangle and my pal Josh Gates doing his expedition unknown. Uh, looking at the disappearance of Flight 19. And I was afraid what they were gonna do is just trot out all the nonsense that we've heard over, over and over again, and not look at it in depth. And I was very pleased to see that they just didn't do that. You know, They, uh, they, they took a very good in-depth look, but um, still was that quote, Jim Lorenzen, how do five aircraft all disappear at once? And the answer, when you look at the records, is they did it on purpose. There is a transcript and it's not a record, it's um, a recording, it's what the tower operators and the people who are involved in this remembered and wrote down at the time. Uh, So you you cannot go back and listen to the recordings, but you can look at those records. And in that record, Taylor, who was leading the flight, um, Lieutenant Taylor, was the flight leader, and he said, when the first man is down to 10 gallons of gas, we'll all ditch together. Thinking, of course, that they would make a much better target to be found in search and rescue than if they were dotted all over the uh, Atlantic Ocean inside the Bermuda Triangle, and that um, uh, you know if, if they were were scattered that way, some of them might have been rescued, some of them might have not been rescued. But if they're all together, they have a better chance of all of them being rescued. So I watched the programs, and I wasn't disappointed. They both provide what I thought is fairly accurate information about those crashes or that those disappearances, and they didn't delve into any of the nonsense that we've been listening to over over decades and decades about what happened to the flight, including some of the ideas that Taylor at one point said uh, he could see the aircraft or what he could he, something was near him and he thought they were from outer space. Uh, just all kinds of nonsense like that that appears in in the uh, writings about the Triangle, but not in the original records, which would be very, very important. But there are two theories about what happened, um, what claims about what happened to the airplanes and the crews and that sort of thing, and we're going to look at those in depth in just a moment. and. Uh, that all comes about from the interviews I did with both Doug Westall and uh, Andy Morocco on, on this program. And I've got them linked in my blog. So if you missed them, you can listen to them now and that you can see what they said about what happened to those aircraft. And just for the last time, let me mention that um, if you take a look at the best of project blue book, in the 21st century encounter in the desert, my, my latest books, if you've enjoyed the books, please, uh, put a, uh, a review up on on Amazon and, and whatnot, because like I said, it, it inspires other people to take a look at the work, and uh, we can get the word out that way. I will be back right after this, so please, stick around.
1: Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. SIMULTV.com Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about SIMULTV.com SIMULTV.com
2: In the mid-1990s, I was approached by a young woman who believed she'd been abducted by alien creatures. In conversations, I began a journey that took me not into the world of interstellar travel, but back through time into past lives. Under hypnotic regression administered by a professional rather than describing abduction, Jenny, as she is called, begins to tell a tale of horror in 19th century London. Her unbelievable past life seems to connect with Jack the Ripper and other monsters of the past. Throughout the session, Jenny provides a rich detail of her past lives that links some of the most horrific killers in history to one another. Using the resources of a university library in the pre-internet day, I was able to verify some of Jenny's claims. She has knowledge that wasn't readily available to a suburban housewife. Does this prove the reality of her tales? Conversations attempts to answer that and other provocative questions. Conversations is available at Amazon.com. We were talking about the uh, Flight 19 and the two competing theories. Kind of lost my place there for a moment, but I got it back. Um, So I was wondering when I talked to Doug Westfall, for example, and his theory was that the flight split up. His theory was that um, Taylor basically flew in circles in the, uh, Atlantic Ocean east of Florida and just couldn't get his mind right on which direction he should go and everybody knows in today's environment if he'd flown west he'd eventually hit land and if he flew east he'd eventually hit land if the if the aircrafts had left uh, fuel had lasted long enough but it would have been Africa and there was no chance of them getting there and so I'd asked him about that why the flight split up and he he said well the uh, other pilots maneuvered away from the flight because they knew what they needed to do and he said that one of the men survived his name was george penessa and that he had sent a telegram to his brother some weeks two or three weeks after the event I think late december of 1945 telling him that he was he had survived and uh, signed it with his the pet name the family used for him georgie and that uh, he eventually moved to california and that he opened a construction business there, and that he, um, uh, uh, I think, died in the 1970s. And uh, when you listen to the interview, which is linked on my blog, of course, um, you can hear him not really giving us any good, solid documentation to prove this. It's kind of his theory that that's what happened. The flight broke up. As a former military pilot who spent... 1,200 hours flying formations in a combat environment, uh, I just can't accept the idea that the the, pi- the the pilots broke up the formation the way they supposedly did. It just doesn't sit well with me. And yes, I know you can say, well, the Mantell guys, and Mantell being the um, pilot who was killed chasing what I think was a balloon in, in 1948, hit the pilots in his flight broke off, but it's not really quite the same thing. It was a ferry flight as opposed to a training mission, and they were maneuvering because one guy said, well, he was out nearly out of gas, he needed to land. The other guys got up to um, 22,000 feet with Mantell and they had to break off the flight because they didn't have oxygen and they were running out of fuel. So it was not quite the same circumstance as, as we had there. So I had, I had a bit of a problem with that. Andy Morocco, however, tells us the flight stayed together. But the crash site is north of the triangle and that's why people haven't found it when they've been looking in the triangle. But he was more interested, I think, in finding the Martin Mariner, and, and, and he might have had some sex, success doing that. And if he finds the Martin Mariner, well, that ends part of, the, part of the mystery. But once again, as I kind of pressed on that, I didn't get uh, any good evidence. It's his speculation based on looking at the records and plotting everything on a map and working it out that way. So I think of the two theories, Morocco's theory is probably the better. Now, John Steiger, who's a friend of mine, sent me a photo of a headstone for Panessa. And I thought, well, that's neat. And I realized it was in the Arlington National Cemetery. And then I got to wondering, is it an empty grave? And if in, if if Panessa is buried there at the Arlington National Cemetery, then the flight didn't disappear without a trace because they found a body. And I wrote to the um, Arlington and they wrote back and said, yeah, there's a section of the cemetery that is set up for Um, headstones, markers for those who are lost in combat, those who are lost at sea, those who are buried at sea, uh, where a body was not recovered. In fact, veterans who donate their bodies to science can have a marker put up in that section of the Arlington National Cemetery. And I thought, well, that makes perfect sense to me. And that's what, I mean, it's not just him, it's other people. And in fact, they sent me the... um, Uh, the name of one of the guys on the Martin Mariner who'd also who disappeared that same night and he has a marker in the in the um, cemetery as well. So how did this happen? Well from what they said obviously a family member had requested it and it had been done. I got in touch with some of the family and they um, told me exactly how how that had gone down and and again this is all laid out on the blog for those who want to delve into it more deeply. So we know what happened. What about the telegram? Well, I was talking to the family members and uh, he told me that the telegram was the last communication they ever had with George Panessa. And this made no sense to me whatsoever. If he sent a telegram saying I'm still alive and the family was afraid he'd get into trouble, they could have arranged meetings uh, with the family. Even Bonnie and Clyde managed to visit their families, for God's sakes, with the FBI and everybody else looking for them. Uh, but supposedly he operated a um, construction business in Los Angeles for years under his own name. I think Andy Morocco eventually found the marker for that George Paness, and it's not the not the same family. So as I say, the 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 problem I have right now is neither uh, Westfall nor Morocco have any independent corroboration for their theories. All right, I I lean toward Andy Morocco's. I think his is the better theory, and uh, from what I understand it, um, he's got, he's gotten a little bit better information to work from, and he's working from the Navy records. So we've, we've got another point that I need to make here, and this is getting back to Charles Berlitz. He said uh, in his book, another unusual element in the mystery of flight 19 became public 29 years after the incident when Art Force Another guy, a reporter, author, and lecturer who has followed the case since 1945 made a startling revelation over a national TV program in 1974, indicating that Lieutenant Taylor had said over his radio, don't come after me. They look like they're from outer space. Now, I I alluded to that a little bit earlier. If you go back and you uh, look at the record, Taylor does say, don't come after me. Ford states that this original information was given to him at the time of the happening by a ham radio operator, notice we have no name, but he did not give much credence to it considering the difficulties of an amateur operator receiving communications from moving aircraft and also the excitement rumors prevalent at the time. Well, that last that sentence is preposterous, it makes no sense. According to Berlitz, but Ford later in his investigation received some unusual corroboration in the transcript of the plane to the tower messages included in a subsequent report brought on by the pressure from the parents of the missing personnel. The official and formally secret transcript, which Ford states he was permitted to examine in part only contained at least one phrase, don't come after me, in common with what the supplied to Ford by the civilian shortwave operator and significantly never previously released. Well... That phrase is in fact in the transcript. I've seen it myself. I think I quoted in uh, in one of my articles I did on the Bermuda Triangle, don't come after me. But there's nothing in the record about they look like they're from outer space. And and I don't understand that reference at all. Why would Taylor assume that in 1945? In 2020, yeah, I can buy it. But in 1945, no, I, I just don't buy that at all. So we have it, it coming up. It's not in the official, they don't be um, looking up like them coming from outer space. is not in the official transcript. The official records make no mention of anything like that. And the important point is that uh, it was introduced in the story some decades later without any way for us to verifying it. We, we don't know who the ham operator is. We've got this, this reference about, uh, um, and from, from uh, Art Ford, and we, we just cannot verify any of that sort of thing. And so I'm just not a big fan of these sorts of comments. And uh, especially when it comes from an unidentified ham radio enthusiast, um, I think that that idea can be rejected. So what we have here with Flight 19, and I think it's pretty clear what happened, uh, Taylor got lost. He um, thought if he flew to the east, he thought he was in the Florida Keys. And if he flew to the east, he would hit Florida. Other members of the flight knew that they were out over the Atlantic, and that that's where the flight was projected to take them. Taylor got confused because of one of his first flights into that area, and the broken land he was looking at reminded him of the Florida Keys, so he thought he'd somehow got down there. He ordered them to fly west for a while. He fo- ordered them to fly east for a while. He ordered them to fly west for a while, and they eventually ran out of gas, and they all ditched together, just as he said. The Martin Mariner it crashed. Bizarre coincidence, but that's what happened. And as I say, uh, Andy Morocco may have found parts of that with Josh Gates, and I'm waiting to uh, learn more about that. And if I do learn more about it, of course, I'll post it at my blog, and I probably should tell you that's at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. So here's where we are with the Bermuda Triangle. I think this is a fairly accurate assessment. Much of the information that we read in the books and magazine articles about it is inaccurate. It uh, is based on other people's writings, and they don't go to the original source to find out exactly what the truth is. When we get to those sources, we realize that it's not quite as mysterious as we thought. It's a manufactured mystery. I think Lloyds of London actually did um, an insurance analysis and realized that given the amount of traffic in that area, it... the The number of losses did not exceed what you would expect. In other words, there was nothing mysterious about it. Sure, there are tales from people who came back from it and talking about mysterious clouds and mysterious time shifts and things like that. But they came back. They didn't disappear. Are there magnetic anomalies in the area? Certainly. Are there bizarre weather patterns? Yeah. All those things come into play. But I think what we have with the Bermuda Triangle is something that's been manufactured by not understanding how to do proper research and not understanding what some of these things and by people who have not been experienced in either sailing or military formation flying and that sort of thing. So I think that's where we are on that. Next week, I'm going to talk to my good friend, Nick Redfern, because he's got a book about uh, Rentalsham Forest written with, um, written about the Burroughs explanation, Don Burroughs, and we talked to him about his belief that um, Rendlesham may not have been extraterrestrial, but something more terrestrially based. Following that, I'm gonna talk to Robert Schaefer about um, skepticism and what we need for evidence. And following that, I will be talking again to my friend Don Schmidt, and we're going to take a look at Len Stringfield's uh, research into crash retrievals. And how good was that research and what did it lead us to to, uh, believe? So I will be back in about 167 hours. Thanks for listening and uh, look us up next time i <clears throat>